0: Welcome back to 1A, a podcast from First Presbyterian Church of Columbia, South Carolina. 1A is a podcast designed to take a brief but in depth look at counseling issues from a pastoral perspective. Reverend Squires is the pastor of counseling here at First Presbyterian Church. This is the fourth episode in our series on depression, and in this episode, in particular, we're going to take a look at a gospel lens to our depression. If you have any comments about our show or a question about something you hear on this episode, please don't hesitate to contact us. You can find all of our contact info on our website at firstpresscolumbia.org. If you'd like to stay updated on when a new episode is released, download our app. You can do so by searching for First Presbyterian Church of Columbia, South Carolina in the App Store of your choice. We hope this ministry is a blessing to you and those around you. Let's get to the conversation.
1: Welcome back to our counseling podcast, 1A, which stands for One Another, where we try to look at counseling topics and bring biblical truth upon them so that we might help our listeners. Joining me, as always, is my biblical counseling intern, Josh Adair. Josh, thanks for being with me again.
0: Thanks so much, Josh, for having me again. It's it's a joy to be here and to talk about these things with you.
1: So we've been talking about depression, and now we are on our fourth episode talking about depression. And in this episode, we really want to talk about mm, kind of the gospel way of how we view depression. Is that right?
0: Yeah, as I was considering, and we were talking about how we were going to handle this, you know, we've sort of touched on this as we've been going through our different episodes so far. We talked first about what's our language of depression, what do we mean when we say that, and then we actually, the last two episodes, we've turned our attention to what is the language that Scripture uses to talk about the language of depression, and then how does Scripture point to some signs of depression. And I thought it would be helpful in this episode, Josh, that— we discuss particularly how, how does the gospel explicitly speak to those who are depressed. From passages like Psalm 88, two things that we need to be mindful of are we need to be people who legitimize people's depression and are willing to listen to those who are depressed, but also that we're not people who are offering counsel like that of Job's friend. And so as I was thinking about continuing how we understand how Scripture speaks to the people who we love and and who might actually be depressed who are listening to this, what does the gospel actually say to people who are depressed?
1: That's a great question. And really, we have a lot focused on the Old Testament and the Old Testament view of depression, And the Old Testament, of course, is part of the counsel of God's word. And yet we live in a New Testament reality. We live in a reality in which we know who our Lord and Savior is. He has come into the world. He has paid the ransom price that we needed in order that we are no longer slaves to sin, but we are slaves to righteousness. And so how does that reality change maybe how we view depression it's course, it's treatment, people who are suffering from it, if, if I'm sure. understanding your question correctly.
0: Absolutely, and I thought it'd be really helpful in particular, you've mentioned this before when when you've even mentioned passages in the Old Testament that speak about the suffering servant as the title in which we understand one of Christ's offices as Messiah. And yep. I I would like to ask your thoughts to begin with on... What is an element of the person or the work of Christ that we see maybe in the Gospels or even that the New Testament presents that might, or off a gospel lens, for those who are in a state of depression? How do people know that Jesus can look at them and know that if our Savior was fully human and really took on all of our humanity, is there anything within the Gospel that tells us Jesus can understand where they're coming from?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. So, a number of things kind of jumped to mind there. Sure. One, Hebrews tells us that he was tried and tempted and always, as are we, which means he has experienced the full range of humanity, just like you and I experience humanity. And it would be odd if, in that humanity, he never experienced grief or sorrow or mm. depression. It, it may not be clinical depression, it may not be two weeks or longer with two or more of those domains and pervasive helplessness or whatever, but he he does sure. have bouts of sadness. And, and that would be the other mm. thing, is that as you watch Jesus's emotional world, maybe one of the most helpful books here is, I believe it's called The Emotional Life of Our Lord and Savior by B.B. Warfield. Yeah. If you just Google Emotional Life B.B. Warfield, you'll find it. It's great. And Sinclair Ferguson did a series of sermons here about the emotional life of Jesus. In part, a reflection on that work by Warfield. Maybe one of the best series of sermons I've ever heard. It's fantastic. So both of those really good for people to go and listen and get a sense of the robust nature of Christ's emotional life. That Hmm. said, Warfield mentions the number one emotion that is attributed to Christ? If you if you were to guess of all the emotions you're aware of, what do you think the number one emotion is attributed to Christ?
0: You know, I think we might presume that Jesus was a pretty happy-go-lucky guy, <laughs> but I think when we look at the testimony of Scripture, he was a person who was frequently sorrowful, like you say.
1: That's right. So that's one of the ones, but the most frequent that Jesus experiences or that's listed as uh, in, in the text itself, is how Jesus felt, sure. is compassion, mm. m- moved by the emotions of others. And mm. oftentimes that is sorrow. So when mm. he sees the woman whose son has died and she is a widow, he is moved with sadness, seeing her sadness, and raises her son back to life when he sees the sadness of his friends who are mm. grieving the loss of his dear friend, Lazarus. Jesus, mm. he's not angry. He's not irritated. He's not sure. unmoved. And I think, honestly, in moments kind of on our own, man to man, if we said what is the number one emotion of Jesus, I think some people might even say irritated. Sure, Irritated with me that I can't get a hold on my own sins, irritated that this continues to be the way that life is. And instead, Jesus, when he runs into people who are sad and weeping and grieving, he weeps with them. That's, that's mm-hmm. what John 10 tells us. He wept, the shortest English verse, not the shortest Greek, but the shortest English verse in yeah. the Bible that Jesus wept. And so Jesus is a man who is well acquainted with grief. And in that, it legitimizes to a certain extent the fact that we feel grief in this world. Why did Jesus feel grief? Well, Jesus felt grief because it is a right understanding of the fallen nature of this world. It is not as it was designed or created to be. It has fallen Mm -hmm. short of that because of our sinfulness, and seeing what his beloved creatures deal with as they struggle in a fallen world of their of their own fault, but a fallen world nonetheless grieves him. Uh, it's one mm. of the most astounding moments in all of Scripture for me is mm. when Jesus is on his way into Jerusalem during his triumphal entry. Have we talked about this already? On this no, I don't think we series? have. Uh, okay. It's... So so. this this scene, for me, has always been amazing. Jesus, mm. for, you know, if, if we take the 33 years as accurate, his number of years on the earth, and three years in earthly ministry, and we have no reason to, to think otherwise, we, we think that that's generally true. Hmm. Jesus has, for three years, been actively ministering, and he has been living in the world as the King of all things for thirty years before that. Sure. And when do we see anyone treat him as the royalty that he is? No, at the triumphal.
0: Well, wouldn't you say? At the except, except there, except there. Okay. Okay.
1: Other than the triumphal entry, do we ever see Jesus being treated as a king?
0: No. No. Never.
1: So, so let, let's put ourselves in his shoes for a moment. We've been living for 33 years. We know that we're the son of God. We know we're the king of all things. No one has recognized that that's who we are. And we finally have this one moment where people are cheering and they're going to be laying palm fronds and we're riding on a cult publicly declaring who we are. If you're in that moment, what are you feeling in that moment? Well, I'm probably feeling joy, and I'm I'm just soaking in the fact that, ooh, yes, finally people recognize, and not in a selfish way, in a way that builds me up and prepares me for the week ahead that is going to be the most difficult week in all of history. Mm. Right? Mm -hmm. What does Jesus do? He weeps.
0: Mm. Why does he weep? Doesn't Warfield say that the, the, it was like an unrestrained wailing over Jerusalem? Like he was yeah. maybe like an—I don't know if this is the right way to say it, but maybe like an ugly cry. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. That's my, how
1: we might modernly say it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable Mm -hmm. That He would have that reaction because Mm -hmm. he recognizes that Jerusalem won't repent. He recognizes Mm -hmm. the effect of the fall on the people and the world that he loves and that Mm -hmm. he created. So I think one of the things that we can do from a gospel perspective when someone is in a depressed state is legitimize that, A, yes, this world Mm -hmm. is not like it's supposed to be. You are not experiencing emotions or actions as they should have been, as you were created in the Imagio Dei to experience.
0: Now, mm. that, that
1: doesn't excuse depression in the sense that, well, that it can just go on forever and no big deal, but it helps to explain and understand and in us have a sense of compassion, a sense mm. of compassion that reflects the character of our Lord and Savior, as He too was compassionate and moved by his people suffering under the weight of a fallen world. Mm. So I think the first thing that we can say is Christ doesn't just say stop it. Sure. Right? And, and, And I think that there's a sense in which we latently have a sort of Christian triumphalism, and let me define that real quick. Sure. Triumphalism is the belief that... Uh, We experience all of the good things of Christianity, and we are completely sanctified, and it downplays any idea of suffering and difficulty continuing Mm -hmm. in this life as those who are short of glory, right? And so triumphalism, a sort of emotional triumphalism, is that you should always be happy And you should always be peaceful, and everything should always be okay with you no matter what. By the way, if that's your view on what it is to be a sanctified Christian, you've got a problem with Jesus in the garden.
0: Yeah, for sure. Man. And that also brings to mind the idea that if that's a form of what we functionally act like in terms of how we relate to those who suffer in our midst— and if it's something that we believe in regards to our own suffering, that we should not have to endure it in this life. It's, you know, theologically it might be called like an overrealized eschatology. Like it's, it's trying to put the benefits of what is the not yet in the now and and not realizing that there is much redemptive work that only our Savior can do in between now and then. And That's right. that it's our role to really lament and weep at that and to, to grieve over that as well. Right. That's right. Hmm. So
1: the first thing I would say from a gospel grid is is that you have a compassionate Savior that helps you understand that suffering and depression are a part of Christian experience. Sure. And that he doesn't look down on you. He's not ashamed Hmm. of you. He does not tell you to go away because of it. In fact, just the opposite. Hmm. When we go through these seasons of life of difficulty, he says, come to me. Maybe one of my favorite books— right now the leading candidate for book of the year 2020 is a book Uh called gentle and lowly by Mm. dane ortland amazon was sold out for two months it took me two months to get my copy in my most recent phd class both in ethics and in counseling it got brought up in both places which is what made me decide to go out and get it. And then it took two months to get here. So if you can get your hands on a copy of Dane Ortlund's Gentle and Lowly, I would highly recommend it. But one of the Mm -hmm. things that Ortlund does a great job highlighting is that Jesus's heart is for those who are suffering. He's attracted to it. There there's something mm. about it that he likes to lean into when his people are suffering to go in and to wipe their tears and to be the one who says when we see his heart, and this is this is the kind of headliner verse for the whole book, which is Come to me all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give to you rest. And so you have you have a savior that understands, but you also have a savior that intervenes, that comes mm. towards you that tells you that when you're feeling this way, he wants to hear it. He's not bothered by it. I mean, how, how often are mm. you, when you have a friend or a loved one who's battling depression, annoyed by it? Yeah. Oh, gosh. Probably nine out of ten times.
0: Yeah, because it's, it's so easy to be so consumed in our self-centeredness at times with the negative impacts of this depression on my life when even as, as people who we are aware of our own need, we forget towards other people and their need of it as well. But, but really, if this is really how Scripture presents it, then what you're saying seems to be that it's almost like we need to understand that there's something within the roots of depression that's actually a very faithful understanding of how life is right now. And we can actually learn something from people who are depressed and learn something in the midst of our depression that this is not what our life should be like.
1: That's right. It's, it's somewhat of an accurate comprehension of fallen life lived out by a fallen person who is designed to be in a glorified place where there was mm-hmm. no sin. And mm-hmm. so depression is, it's, it's emotional pain, right? Like, like physical pain is good. People often think that physical pain is bad, but physical pain is good. There are people who don't experience physical pain. And, and you know, as a kid, you're like, man, I'd love to be someone who never experiences physical pain. Those people have very short lifespans and get injured all the time because they put their mm. hands down on hot surfaces and don't know to remove them. And they end up mm. injuring their bodies and don't know it. And so they don't tend to it and they don't get uh, the right medical treatment. Pain is what tells them something is wrong and they need to heal and emotional pain in depression is what tells us something is wrong. Something is wrong about this life, and that is true. It is an accurate reflection of what it is to be on this side of glory before mm. Jesus should return.
0: Yeah, that's that's something that also shows you that you can have a really spot-on theology and still be functionally very wrong in how you apply it. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs>
1: now, now we got to be careful what what I'm not saying is like the depressive state is an ultimate state or it's a better state sure. or a more sanctified state. We're not aiming for depression. And sure. and we want to help people, and that's the second part is to give them hope so that they may move through depression and be one who has hope in a fallen world, not just grief and sadness in a fallen world. However, we often treat it as something that is annoying, something that is frustrating, and something that is wrong or inaccurate. And mm. and what we want to do is we want to correct that a little bit and say, no, A, Jesus gives us a sense that it is accurate, and B, Jesus says, when you feel that way, come to me, I love you, and there's something lovely about that suffering, brokenness, that I get to enter mm. into.
0: Mm. So there's a sense in which... The depressed, from what you're saying so far, they can expect that their Savior not only knows and sees them in their suffering, not only has experienced that level of suffering, and is also on the same level in some ways grieved by it as they are, but He's actually with them in the midst of their suffering.
1: That's right. I mean, that is is the promise, right, of Mm. I will be... Uh, you'll be a people to me, and I will be to you unto you a God. I will be with you, the Emmanuel principle. Um, hmm. He is with you even in the Depression. And he, it, doesn't, it doesn't make him go away. He's not annoyed at it. He doesn't think, oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm kind of with you, but I've got my back turned to you, and my face is turned towards the happy Christians. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, actually, yeah. If, it, I mean, hmm. that's an inaccurate representation no matter what. But but if we were to take that analogy, which is terrible and should not be taken, but if we were to take it, he actually seems to have his face towards those who are depressed and sad. There's something mm. inescapably attractive to him about walking mm. into the suffering of his people.